Hello everyone, I am cold case investigator and true crime novelist Michael C. Bouchard, coming to you from the Housatonic River Valley in Derby, Connecticut. The Night Stalker podcast will be brought to you in a series of 18 different episodes examining unsolved disappearances, homicides, and other strange events throughout New England and other parts of the United States over the past few decades. What makes a person kill? Even more, what turns a person into a serial killer? What makes a person lurk in the darkness waiting for his next victim? Is it the thrill of the chase? The thrill of killing another human being? Or the thrill of never being caught? We may never know the answer to any of these questions. But I can assure you, as you sit here tonight listening to the podcast, somewhere a monster is lurking in the darkness waiting to kill their next victim. For whatever reason, we all walk on the dimly lit path of life on this planet, telling ourselves it will never happen to me. It will never happen in this town. But do we really know that? I hope you enjoy each of the episodes and feel free to email me with any questions or comments at the link at the end of the podcast. Thank you for listening. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's Michael C. Bouchard hosting episode four of the Night Stalker podcast. Today's episode is going to be entitled Creatures of Folklore, Fact, or Fiction. It's kind of an interesting story how this uh, book came to be. Um, I don't have much free time in my life. I spend it running around like a crazy man. But I did get one night to sit down and on the couch and make myself a cup of coffee. So I decided to put myself uh, a science channel that might teach me something be a little more educational. So I put on the Discovery Channel to learn something. And what I really learned was not to turn on the TV. Uh, after watching... Uh, several episodes of uh, Ancient Aliens and Finding Bigfoot and Mountain Monster Hunter. Uh, I thoroughly uh, insulted any part of my intelligence that I had left, if there was any to start with. And I started thinking about some of our common folklores like werewolves, vampires, uh, Bigfoot, all these other type of things. But it was apparent uh, I didn't have to look very far for any aliens from outer space because apparently they were already hosting the, uh, the television show on the Discovery Channel. So, <clears throat> so let's start talking about a, uh, a couple of these, uh, these different creatures we have or are supposed to have running around. Um, I actually wrote this book, believe it or not, way back in 2017, and it was dedicated to the um, 
the uh, Russian uh, hikers who, uh, on January 28th, 1959, uh, hiked it to the North Ural Mountains uh, and never returned home. So, okay, let's talk the Bigfoot phenomenon. You know, I'm just like everybody else. You know, I, I, I like horror movies. I have this, you know, there's always this romance of, um, you know, something unexplained or something frightening happening. Uh, I think one of the best, the best, uh, Examples of that was uh, Orson Welles' 1938 War of the Worlds, which uh, literally sent people running for cover, abandoning big cities, abandoning their house, uh, in some cases even leaving their wives or husbands behind. Um, we, as, we as people are always looking for things to... Uh, ourselves you know I don't know why that is but maybe it's just a thing I guess Bigfoot <clears throat> now my thought on Bigfoot is there is no Bigfoot there's no Loch Ness monster there are no crop circles um, there's just a lot of people making a lot of money uh, selling this stuff to people that want to believe in something. Now, Bigfoot, <clears throat> let's look at it this way. From an archaeological perspective, now I, I was involved in archaeology for 32 years. I know a little bit about it. On a daily basis, people throughout the world are running, finding artifacts that are several thousand years old, you know, whether it's on a shore, eroded piece of ground, sticking out of a cornfield, what have you, you know, and, you know, the artifacts are usually either stone tools, um, coins, some type of metal works. Um, and we have to remember, we, we've had probably a couple hundred thousand excavations throughout the world, not just North America, throughout the world in general. And... With this being said, there has not been any faunal or bone remains belonging to a Bigfoot. None, none, none of that, no Bigfoot faunal remains or bones have ever been found randomly like other artifacts are. Um, although there's a lot of myths surrounding Bigfoot, you know, going back as far as Native Americans, um, up until this point in time, there's nothing to conclusively say that, it, that a Bigfoot does exist. Now, we have the, there's this, this really bizarre theory, and, and I'll explain it to you, that Bigfoot hides its dead. Here's the problem with Bigfoot hiding its dead. These people, animals, whatever you want to call them, uh, knock on trees with sticks, throw rocks, hoot and holler, and socially that's about how far they got, which is kind of unusual because uh, they should have adapted to 
um, some type of technology or social system uh, as time went on, but apparently these were the only species on the earth that hasn't conformed to that type of uh, profile. Now, you have to understand, to hide or bury your dead requires some type of religious belief, however you want to call it. However, if these beasts, animals, whatever you want to call them, are hooting and hollering, uh, knocking on trees with sticks, throwing rocks, breaking branches, and have not yet learned to knack or make stone tools as a way of hunting, gathering, whatever you want to call it, basically they would not have been technologically or socially advanced enough to um, have a religious system which would require hiding, burying bodies. And again, it's it's always brought up to the point that, um, you know, no type of uh, irregular formal remain has ever been found. Uh, all of the um, DNA samples, such as hair, uh, that skull, that's wherever the hell that was up in the, with the monks somewhere in those mountains, all of that, that which was tested did not come back to anything that wasn't uh, categorized in some, either, you know, either it's a human, a mammal, an animal. So they've all been identified. So <clears throat> plus there's no impact. There's no impact made by an animal that day which would require s several thousand calories a day to live. There's been no impact on wildlife or uh, vegetation uh, anywhere significant enough to even suggest that. So, uh, and it's still amazing. People will spend tons of money attempting to look for something uh, that doesn't exist, and that that is Bigfoot. Werewolves are another kind of interesting thing. You know, the American Werewolf, when that came out in the 80s, I believe, uh, you know, scared the hell out of everybody. I mean, you know, it scared the hell out of me. I know that. I watch it, I, I watch it with one eye open and I was probably hiding under the bed at the same time. Um, so what turns a werewolf into a werewolf? A full moon. What is a full moon? A full moon is 13% of reflective sunlight off the lunar surface. With that being the case, remember sunlight and reflection at 13%. Well, during the day, the sun, sunlight after it gets through the atmosphere and all of that stuff is 80, 80% or more. So. If that theory was actually right, uh, we should have little Eddie Munsters running around the street biting people in the, the kneecaps uh, every day the sun came out. And obviously that doesn't happen. The silver bullet theory, that's another uh, interesting thing. <clears throat> Anybody that reloads or knows anything about ballistics will tell you that 
Uh, let's use something, a regular uh, revolver caliber, like a 38 Special, which is 158 grains. The same size bullet made out of silver because of its weight would be almost 400 grains, which means that at a distance of 25 to 30 feet, if you fired directly at a paper pie plate, uh, the likelihood of it hitting it are probably little or none. Uh, you would probably have a, <clears throat> a three foot drop. Therefore, the accuracy of ever hitting anything moving as, as fast as a werewolf, yeah, even the normal dog, let's say, uh, the probability of hitting it is uh, little to none. So, what was this werewolf that uh, started this whole this whole trend back in London, back in the uh, 17, 1800s, whenever it occurred. Um, it was popular and common at the time for people to keep jackals as pets. Now jackals, um, as, they be, as they grow older, they become very aggressive and instinctively vicious. Uh, they could have been easily mistaken as a wolf or werewolf or whatever wants to, uh, whatever wants to, uh, whatever you want to consider. The jackal is extraordinarily uh, carnivorous and uh, cannibalistic. It will eat animals and humans. So that's what those attacks were. And let's stop, and let's stop the, the, one of these, um, one of these um, alleged werewolves was a, good old lead bullet. Now, lycanthropy is a, um, a symptom with the word werewolf. However, lycanthropy is not designated especially for werewolves. It's just a, a term that people use. Lycan, lycanthropy. Um, it's just basically a, a disorder where a person believes that they are turning into or are a werewolf. Uh, kind of interesting, but... Um, Like I said, I mean, it, that's another uh, another one of those theories that just doesn't hold in the water. Speaking about water, how about the, our Loch Ness Monster, Nessie? Well, here's the problem with Nessie. That famous uh, photograph taken of the Loch Ness Monster uh, in 1934 by uh, Robert Wilson actually was found to be a, a hoax. It was actually a small toy submarine with a uh, some type of dinosaur head on it. So right off the rip, you know, the origin point of the uh, Loch Ness Monster now is in question. Um, there have been, you know, reports prior to that, 1856, by a villager armed <laughs> with a pitchfork who mistakenly believed a, a horse wash washing itself in the lake was a uh, was a monster well I suppose if you drink enough you'd probably believe anything's going to be a monster I mean um here's the problem with Loch Ness the, the species is supposed to be a, a plesiosaur which is about has been extinct give or take 65 million years now how did it get into how did it get into Loch Ness, which is landlocked? It's a landlocked freshwater system. Plesiosaur uh, is a saltwater creature. Uh, 
mammal type tendencies, has to come above the water surface to breathe. Um, the problem is there, there are no submerged natural tunnels leading from salt water into fresh water. Okay, so that kind of shoots the, um, shoots the theory of it traveling, you know, through some type of cavern into the, into the lake. Uh, the biggest problem with the theory is that being a saltwater creature, if something like Loch Ness was put in fresh water, it would drown. For the simple reason that saltwater animals have, go through a process called osmosis. And what that is, is when they're in salt water, their body requires fresh water to uh, survive. Osmosis is basically the function of removing salt from the water so that, that it can hydrate whatever species uh, happen to be in the salt water. If you put a salt water animal into fresh water, fish, mammal, what have you, uh, they drown because there's so much, because there's no salt to be processed, all the water's coming in is fresh. So it's like, you know, just there's just too much water. Plus, if you, if you think about, um, the lake probably holds about 200 tons of fish on an annual basis. Um, if there was a, A school, flock, whatever you want to consider these of these in the water. Uh, the at this point, the, the lake would be basically completely void of any type of small uh, any type of small uh, fish or anything else they might happen to uh, eat. Um, Let's go on to some other one. Crop circles, another inter interesting uh, point. Crop circles were, really weren't noticed or didn't start to take on any claim to fame until about 1966. Um, the interesting thing about that is, if you think about it, we had Project Blue Book that ran from 52 to uh, 96. I mean, uh, 69, 1969, with over, what are the 12,618 sightings, reported sightings. However, with all these sightings, there were no crop circles. So how do we have that many sightings and then all of a sudden, you know, down the road, you know, 10 years down the road, all of a sudden now the alien, well, now all of a sudden the aliens are landing in cornfields. They, they missed them for the last uh, 12,618 uh, uh, sightings, but now now they're uh, now they're landing into uh, uh, cornfield. The one interesting thing is if you notice all of <clears throat> all of the the landings or noted landings are in fields with. <clears throat> vegetation like corn or wheat that are tall. Why is that? Because they're easier to notice when 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 that type of vegetation is matted down, whether it be board or something on top of it. It's it's easily observed because it's 
it's it's a void of tall taller plants in a, in a, a specific area. So why don't they ever land in a grass field? Uh, I don't remember hearing of crop circles in grass fields. I don't remember hearing of crop circles in the, the desert. So why do they always got to land in a cornfield? I don't know. Maybe like popcorn. I, I just don't know. Um, we're going to get into the Roswell Area 51 thing uh, down the road. <clears throat> but you have to remember, and the, what, the reason I, I, I question what, at which time these these crop circles had their, their claim to fame was because this is another one of these urban legends that um, make a lot of money. I mean, a lot of books, a lot of lectures, a lot of just, just a, it's it's a, it's about the money. Uh, that's what most of these urban legends are about the money. Because prior prior to Project Blue Book, you also had Project Project Sign, which was in four, 1947. Uh, Project Grudge, which went from 49 until 52, when Project Blue put up came up. So, with the lack with all these sightings and the lack of any type of crop circles, I'm kind of kind of say that that's probably not what's going on. It's, and you notice they're always near roads. You know why? Because people are lazy. They don't like to carry their boards and ropes too far from their vehicles. Area 51. Okay, this is this is a view, and I could go on for this. I, I'll, I'll do a, a an individual episode on. Uh, not Area 51 itself specifically, but the individual that started the ball rolling, uh, Robert Lazar. Uh, Robert Lazar claimed in 1988 that he had worked for the Los Alamos Labs in Area 51. Uh, <clears throat> it was actually a different location, 15 miles. It was inside of Area 51, but it was 15 miles away from. Uh, the area that we consider uh, Area 51. Um, Lazar had made a lot of a lot of statements. Um, his first sta statement was that he he was working on a reverse. Uh, uh, what he was basically trying to do was he, there were nine alien space spacecrafts he reported seeing. Uh, they were attempting to figure out how they worked. Um, he discovered element 115, uh, which he claims not to have been, you know, it just didn't happen here. You know, it wasn't something that was naturally found on, on Earth. Uh, he claimed that the aliens were from, um, a galaxy that, uh, I believe the name was, uh, had something to do with reticuli. Now, and then he said he had majestic clearance. Uh, however, what he fails to tell, and he says his name's in the phone book. Uh, as a worker at Los Alamos during that time period, uh, he claims to have all of these college degrees. 
Uh, he makes a lot of claims that, quite honestly, uh, can't be substantiated. However, if you if you ask uh, George Knapp or Josh Kubel, uh, you know they're on the boat with him because they're making a hell of a lot of money on, on selling books and bullshit. Um, Lazar also reported that the FBI had raided his uh, business. So we'll kind of go stage by stage here. You know, so he's saying that, that, that these aliens, based on his knowledge, or he was told that they, they, be, they came from some, some galaxy. Uh, all I can remember right now is, uh, this is a large book, it's got a lot of crap in it, uh, Reticuli. What he fails to tell people was, you know, you know where he found that out? In Pro Project Aquarius, which was done in the 50s, 30 years before, uh, you know, Lazar uh, made his claim, um, there was a report that the United States military had captured aliens and they were from this reticuli. Okay, so that was already known information that he could have got. So it was nothing new that he learned. It was just... It was information that was out there. Majestic Clarence, where did that come from? Well, the government, when they decided that there might be a possibility of UFOs and they needed to be investigated, got 12, 12 individuals, some scientists, some military. They put them together. Here's your Majestic 12. Here's your Majestic Clarence, okay? Uh, the majority of the college colleges he graduated from, um, and the degrees that he said he held, uh, none of them could be uh, validated. Now, as far as this element 115, well, even in the early 60s, these scientists realized that the <clears throat> periodic table could probably go up to 122 to 126. So by just throwing an extra number like 115 out there was no big deal. Uh, and a second, the two type of types of chemicals that it took to combine to manufacture this uh, element 115 were, were always present uh, on, on, on Earth. I mean, you know, so his, you know, his claim that this stuff was from another planet, this and that. No, it's not because the two chemicals that are required to, to uh, manufacture element 115 are actually were already present. So, now one of the biggest funnies I found out about it was that he claimed that uh, to get into this building he had to use some type of sophisticated hand uh, hand scanning device. Well, I found the hand scanning device identical to the one he had a picture of, and I found it in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I believe that was in 77. So, that, that hand, uh, that hand scanner was on, was on the big, the big screen before he even came up with it. Um, his statement about him being in the phone book, Los Alamos phone book, he was. However, he was under the contractor section, which meant he wasn't a permanent employee for the government. 
he was a subcontractor and uh, there's no way that subcontractors are going to be given information, especially the type he claims he has or had, or Clarence, as a matter of fact. Uh, now, he claims that the FBI raided his business twice, and in fact, yes, they did, because I read the search warrants, and they were not looking for this element 115, who ha which has a lifespan of about 25 milliseconds. So before you thought about stealing it, stealing it, it would have disappeared. Uh, it would have disappeared. So uh, that on his part and uh, Corbell's and uh, George Knapp, you know, that that's all. That's just all bullshit. I had to sell books and. Um, but the warrants, the first warrant was for his business sold radioactive material which was one transported out of state so now you have interstate commerce with radioactive material or hazardous material boom you get pinched by the government the second one slightly different case he had done the same thing sent radioactive material over state lines and they were actually used believe it or not to uh, kill someone so, you know, there's no big secret in any of this stuff. And, you know, he goes on with his bullshit stories about, um, you know, they're after me, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, he's got a very inventive imagination. Uh, but as far as anything that these people have got to say about, you know, him being there and, you know, seeing all this stuff, this and that, you know, that's just... Uh, that's just another one of those uh, fantasies, I guess. I guess we call them. Um, one of the, kind of one of the more interesting things, uh, the Chupacabra. Now, the Chupacabra, for something that is an urban legend, only came to be in the 1970s. So where the hell was it before then? You know? See, this is the type of stuff you run into. You know, this is things supposed to be running around. What it was actually found out to be was either uh, dogs, coyotes, or wolves that had, um, um, I forgot the name right off the top of my head, but uh, basically, basically they all had mange. Uh, the reason for multiple targets, the animal was basically too weak to kill one specific target, so he struck at multiple targets. The reason there was a lot of blood when an animal has mange, it's dehydrated. It's attempting to rehydrate itself by animal blood. That's simple as that. Uh, and as fast as the chupacabra came into being, uh, it has seemed over the past couple of years to be disappearing. So, kind of says it all. Uh, you know, just just not timeline. Delto, uh, Delto Pass, which I had originally spoke about, uh, refers to the nine hikers uh, who died in uh, North uh, Ural Mountains in the uh, former Soviet Union 
uh, in uh, 1959. A lot of theories about this would happen, you know, uh, you know, killed by, you know, what basically happened was they went out, they went out hiking and uh, they weren't heard from for a while. Search team goes out there, finds their camp, finds them, you know, randomly, randomly around the campsite all dead. So the conspiracy theories then begin. Uh, they had cut, they had cut themselves <clears throat> to get out of the tent instead of using the door. They had cut the tent open and exited through the hole that was cut from the inside out. Uh, they had photographs of um, bright lights in the uh, in the sky. <clears throat> uh, by the time they had been found, there was an average of about two to three feet of snow on top of them. Uh, the autopsies basically noted crushed bones, uh, missing eyes, missing tongues. Uh, broken bones. Well, let's face it. Um, when you have three three feet of wet snow put on you, bones are going to break. When you're laying out there, rodents are going to eat your eyes and eat your tongue. Um, so, basically, you have nothing suspicious yet. Um, one of the photos showed something that Looked like it was Harry standing out by a tree behind somebody. Closer look, uh, it was it was a one of the campers that had a uh, woolen hat on. So uh, the interesting thing about this, the Delta Pass. So what happened there? Up until recently, there were a number of uh, theories. You know, uh, attacked by Bigfoot or the the Russian Yeti, as they call them. Um, they were killed in an avalanche. Uh, they were killed by local villagers. Uh, you know, so for, for a long time, it had been a somewhat questionable uh, homicide scene, basically, is what most people consider it. Um, but recent, uh, the recent release of... Uh, paperwork and information by the Russian government basically indicate that um, what they forget to tell you though and a lot of people that talk about the Delta Pass is many of the people that were found the hikers the dead hikers their skin was orange orange indicates chemical or high heat so we obviously know that Bigfoot didn't cause high heat uh, Russian Yeti didn't cause high heat and an avalanche, which is made up of cold snow, didn't cause that. So, what happened? Well, the the new paperwork released by the government suggested that uh, they were victims of a uh, a biological bomb, basically a dirty bomb that was either being tested. I personally think, based on the information I read, that they were targeted specifically to see what these type of weapons would do. Um, and that's also uh, that's also uh, we had a lot of theories uh, killed by the, the Soviet military 
rocket weaponry test. Killed by Bigfoot or Yeti. Um, let me see. Killed by unidentified persons from a flying saucer. Uh, avalanche. Weather condition. Um, a lot of conspiracy theories based uh, going on here. Um, like I said, when you have books that are a couple hundred pages, you can't go through everything. Um, but it seems that they were all victims of a, uh, a dirty bomb, a biological bomb. <clears throat> and like I said, I believe that they were specifically targeted because of the remote area. And if they disappeared, nobody ever found them who would have known better. <clears throat> the one interesting thing, wanting to just get back real fast about um, people making money on these type of things, and that's why they keep a lot of this, this fake horse crap going. Um, the first day that I, I was watching this, it was it was uh, an expedition unknown. Uh, with Josh Gates. Now, Josh Gates is probably the only person I will give any any type of credit to on that channel. <coughs> um, you know, he does have a background in archaeology. He he looks at things from an archaeological perspective, not a hocus pocus or a witch doctor perspective. He took along with him uh, Mike Skibicki, who entitles himself a world explorer. Not sure exactly what that is or what that means or what the job title is, but I guess he's a world explorer. Now, throughout the whole uh, without the, through the whole uh, interview with uh, Joshua Gates, Kabicki completely agreed with uh, Joshua Gates that no, it wasn't Bigfoot. No, it probably wasn't this, wasn't that. Well, two days later, the Discovery Channel puts on um, the Russian Russian uh, Yeti, blood in the snow, or something like that. Well, guess who's who's um, who's hosting that one? Our world explorer, Mike Skabicki, who two days prior stated that there was had nothing to do with a Bigfoot or anything like that. Now he's now he's hunting Bigfoot. So <clears throat> you know like I said uh, it's all about money. It's not about facts, it's all about money. And my and anybody that knows me, my books are about facts. I don't write um, I don't write books to entertain per se. I, I write research material so that people that are looking for real uh, research material can find it. Um, because there is a lot of bullshit out there. Um, so I'll just read kind of like uh, the, the, the last, the last, uh, paragraph in, in, in this book. I have now completed my little literary rant, which I often do. If you are sitting at home at night and a skinny green neck 
creature appears to walk out of a crop circle across the street from the cornfield across from your house and peers into your window, I guess I was wrong. But if it doesn't happen, I guess I was right. And remember, if your doorbell rings and there's nobody there, it's not a Martian, it's Halloween. Orson Welles, 1938. Uh, the book's a quick read. It's just over 100 pages. Uh, has a lot of comments and confusions on the urban list, uh, legends that uh, every time we hear a bump in the night, we jump backwards a couple feet. So, I guess all I can really tell you in in a case like this is you're going to have to do some research and research it based on fact. You know, um, I find and, and I, I reiterate this many times that a lot of the podcasts that are out there are uh, baiters. They bait people in with, you know, fake, fake facts, fake, fake information. It brings their numbers up, their numbers go up, their money goes up, and but as as far as research material or actual facts, uh, not really there. Um, it's not um, time could be spent better than. I just keep always thinking of all this money people are spending looking for. Bigfoot and um, Loch Ness Monster, and then you had uh, hunting Bigfoot for 10 years. They were hunting Bigfoot, had, didn't find crap. So um, I just retitle it, Not Finding Bigfoot on my Pinterest board. Um, kind of to bring it into a more real perspective. You know, they're hunting Bigfoot, never found anything. So it's really kind of like not finding Bigfoot, but on that note, I will leave you alone to your own beliefs, conclusions, or confusions sometimes, but uh, the book can be found on Amazon with a lot of my other books, so if you get a chance, pick it up, take a quick read, and on all of, all of the episodes at the end, I have my personal email address. If you do send something, uh, any type of question, comment, or confusion, I will get back to you. Uh, I make it a habit of trying to respond to all my emails. See, see you next episode.